We will be turning to John chapter 8. Good morning and welcome again to Hope Community Church. It is so good to be here with you and to have you here. Oftentimes I pray before I preach because I think we should. I've noted though we prayed three times already in our worship service. So, uh, uh, chapter John, excuse me, John chapter 8. Um, I'm going to read to you a Bible verse in, instead, of, instead of praying. So I got one for you here on this Thanksgiving weekend. John chap, excuse me, Philippians chapter 1 is what I'm just going to read to you. Don't, you don't need to turn there. I thank my God every time I remember you. And that would be all of you folks. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership with me in the gospel from the first day until now. I often pray for you. I often pray for Sundays. Sometimes I come up here by myself and just sit in the front row, right where you are, Charles, and I pray. And I pray for you, folks. And sometimes I walk around the room knowing where some of you sit because we do have an uh, informal seating chart. <laughs> and I pray for you in that way as well. And I'm just delighted to be uh, gathering with you. I could have been watching NFL football today. I could have had a different life. I could have had a different story. That's how I started off was Sundays were important because of NFL. You know what? That last verse of Great is Thy Faithfulness where we sang just ourselves and no instruments, just the voices. I'll trade that. Trade NFL football for that any day. That was just special. Okay, I want to talk to you about John chapter 8. There are some in our culture who suggest that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere in what you believe. They might also say things like, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, or there are many paths to God. I'm going to use an example from our world culture today, not just our postmodern American culture, but throughout the world today. There are three major world religions that are monotheistic. And that means these three, although they have different concepts and different ideas about God, they believe and teach that there's only one God, monotheism. They are monotheistic, belief in one God. These three sometimes are said to be different paths to the same God. It's as if... Um, Folks have looked at this and, and recognized, okay, here, here you are as a person, and, and the one God is up there. And you can travel to the left, you could travel to the right, you could go right up the middle. As long as you're on a path that gets you to that one God, then it's all the same in the end. And I would beg to disagree. And I think we're going to find that in John chapter 8 today as well. So let's take a look at this. Here we have, in simplicity, this is a very simple summary of uh, these three world religions. Christianity says that Jesus is the Son of God. Judaism says that Jesus is not the Son of God. And we know that, right? That, that should be pretty evident as we've traveled through the Gospels. You might not be aware that Islam has Jesus in their thinking as well. Jesus is in the Quran, and Jesus is in the doctrine or the beliefs of is Islam. They would say that Jesus is not the Son of God. Now, we could stretch this summary out a bit more, and we could say that Jesus is the Son of God, according to Christianity, according to the Bible, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the Savior. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead. God has exalted him to the highest place. 
Judaism doesn't say the same thing about that. Judaism will say that Jesus is not the Son of God. He is not the Messiah. He did die, but he didn't raise from the dead. Islam says something very different than that. They would say that Jesus is not the Son of God. They don't care about the Messiah. It's not in their mention. Jesus is not the Savior of the world. He didn't die. And so he was never raised from the dead in that way. Or excuse me, I should say, oh yeah, that is accurate to say he didn't die. I was about to say he didn't die on a cross. Islam would say, Jesus as a prophet, he was taken up to God. And so he never had to pass through death's door. Those ideas are very different. So this, the, 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 the notion that there can be many paths to the one God that is out there needs to be reexamined. You cannot say that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is not the Son of God at the same time. Somebody is right and somebody is wrong because those ideas are very different. That's what Jesus approaches in John chapter 8. He's in a conversation that actually goes hostile. And, and it, it goes hostile because he lands on the side of truth and he will not back down from truth. He will not compromise truth. He will not say, well, okay, you guys are mad at me, but you're sincere in what you're believing, so go ahead and go your way, and you're sincere, and in the end, God will accept you. There's nothing like that in this conversation that Jesus has in John chapter 8. So I think I've introduced that to you. We should turn there and, and read a portion of it. Through Jesus and Jesus alone, you can have life that is worth living, and you can have freedom from sin. My aim for you this morning is to show you God's liberating truth and God's liberating grace from the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. Let's take a look at this. First, we'll look at God's liberating truth found in the teaching of Jesus Christ. I'm going to start with verse 31. That might feel to you that well, I'm just picking up randomly in the middle, but I've already preached through the first half of John chapter 8. So here we are, John chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, or excuse me, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you see the specific, uh, specific nature of truth? Jesus says in verse 32 twice, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He doesn't say you will know a truth, and a truth will set you free. He doesn't say you will know one of many truths. He doesn't say you will know a portion of the truth. Jesus says, and you can view it in your mind as having all caps, THE truth. The truth that is out there. The truth that is available, Jesus says you can have. Great question to ask is, where, where do you find this truth? What is the truth that Jesus is speaking about? Well, fortunately for us, John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 are sort of a parallel of, of statements, a parallel of, of uh, teaching statements that, that Jesus is, is making. 
So he begins by saying, if you hold to my teaching, and then I want to um, highlight these two words or phrases so you can see how they go together. If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, pick up the next verse, then you will know the truth. We can just, just, let, just, just slide down from verse 31 to 32. If you hold to my teaching, then you will know the truth. That's what Jesus is getting at right here. If you hold to what I am teaching you, Jesus says, not another pastor, not a church, not necessarily, but the teaching of Jesus Christ. If you hold to the teaching of Jesus Christ, then, and I would add, only then will you know the truth. That is so important because that is the truth that will set you free. Now, this teaching that Jesus gave to us is more than facts and information. It's the teaching of Jesus, but it's also the teaching about Jesus. In other words, Jesus did teach some things for us to do and some things for us to live by, but he also taught us about himself. That's very important because that is a distinguishing mark of Christianity. As you saw in the comparison of monotheistic religions, Christianity is the only one who says Jesus is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, crucified on the cross, rose from the dead, exalted to heaven. No, one, no other religious system says all of that about Jesus Christ. The teaching of Jesus is more than love everybody. The teaching of Jesus includes Jesus identifying himself as the Son of God and the only saving option that can set you free from sin. Here's an application that we have landed on as a church. We teach the Bible carefully and in great detail. There is no other teaching that can set us free other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We carefully teach the Old Testament, for instance, because that is a section of our Bibles that, that teaches us what it will look like when Jesus arrives the first time. Now, he's already come, but we get to look at the Old Testament and understand what the uh, people of God were looking for when, when the Messiah, when the Savior would arrive. The Old Testament helps us to understand the New Testament. There are numerous, in fact, there's over 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life, death, and ministry. We also carefully teach the Gospels because those books contain the very words of Jesus Christ. By the time I am done with the Gospel of John, for instance, I will have spent 40 Sundays with you talking about teaching various portions of the Gospel of John. We take our time because this is valuable. This is important to us. This is part of what we are called to do. We carefully teach the letters to the churches because those books tell us what the early church did and believed in response to the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. And aren't you glad that Pastor Aaron is taking his time traveling with us in detail explaining what 1 Corinthians means? It is so good to come to an understanding of what that letter means. It'd be easy to read through it and, and just turn some pages and get frustrated. Then, oh, there's a thing or two I don't understand. Let's just move on. No, let's just take our time. And we'll go in depth with the uh, first Corinthians. We carefully have taught the book of Revelation. 
Now, this was about a dozen years ago, but I spent 34 Sundays in this room explaining to whoever was here at the time, not all of you were here, explaining to the church the book of Revelation. And that is so important because that teaches us the church in heaven, the victorious church and our victorious Savior. We want to know about that. If you ever need to leave here, please, please, please seek out a church that teaches the Bible and preaches the gospel. Well, at this point, I find myself asking the question, does the, does the truth of God's word liberate people from sin if they merely hear it? Is that what Jesus is getting at? That if you just simply hear him teach something, does that set you free? Or is there something more that needs to be done? Verse 31 we still have this up there. If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Notice that. The, the ones that Jesus identifies as belonging to him, his disciples, you are mine. My disciples are the ones who hold to his teaching. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It sounds like only those who are set free are those who know the truth only those who know the truth are the disciples who hold to the teaching of Jesus Christ. And all I did right there was say verse 31 and verse 32 in reverse order. The word hold or abide, if you have an ESV or another translation, literally means remain. It implied remain for a long period of time. In other words, Christians persevere in the faith. That's how you know they they are Christians. They persevere. They hold on to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Christians become Christians by holding on to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Christians stay Christians by holding on to the teaching of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said it this way. It just helps to, uh, us, us to understand that it, it, it's not only our strength. It, it's not just up to us to to grab this rope that's dangling in front of us and hold on for dear life. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, I take hold of that for which Jesus Christ has taken hold of me. God holds on to you, and that enables you to hold on to him in submission to his word. Okay, well, Jesus does get some pushback here in John chapter 8, and it begins with uh, verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? It appears to be at least a moderately respectful inquiry, but this quickly builds into accusation. Let's look at the next paragraph, and I'll read verses 34 to 39. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So there's a contrast between a slave and a son. So if the son, so if Jesus, the son, sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Well, Abraham is our father, they answered. 
Jesus is still imparting truth in this paragraph. This is his teaching. As much as our culture wants to uh, just say that Jesus primarily taught about love, we need to receive his teaching as it is. In his great love for people, Jesus taught the truth about our sin problem. So let's run through some of this again, and I'll be... uh, I'll be brief, although I wanted to go into some detail here. One aspect of God's liberating truth is that the power of God's truth, at least sometimes, is contingent upon our obedience to that truth. There is freedom to be had in Christ, but sometimes that that freedom is only achieved through obedience to Jesus Christ. Verse 34, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone born into this world is a slave to sin because we've all sinned. Boy, that's dire. That's not happy camper material. But there is an an escape clause. Watch the contrast in verse 35. A slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Okay, so you can either be a, a slave or you can be adopted as a son or a daughter into God's family. So this is the remedy to our sin problem that every human being needs to hear. Verse 36. So if the son sets you free, you will be free Indeed, the freedom from slavery to sin is through Jesus and only Jesus. It's not through effort. It's amazing that as Christians, we could walk with Christ for 5, 10, 20, in my case, I think 45 years, and we forget this. We have a problem, and so we attack the problem. I'm going to work it out. I'm going to tough it out. I'm going to change. I'm going to write myself notes and reminders. Last resort, I guess I'll pray. Why do we do that? If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Genuine, genuine freedom comes from Jesus through submission to his word. When I was a young Christian, again, 45 years ago, I never thought I'd put that, those numbers together like that. I was a young Christian 45 years ago. Wow. Let that, let that resonate in my mind for a while. It was reported that Bob Dylan became a Christian. Anybody hear Bob Dylan anymore? Is that like prior generation? He was a popular singer and a bit of a contrarian, and and suddenly he was conforming his life to Jesus Christ. I have no idea why, no idea what happened, never heard his story. But I did notice it was a big deal in our culture at the time. And during that time when he was connected with Christianity, he wrote a song called Gotta Serve Somebody. 
It was a fun tune. I wrote down some lyrics. No, I'll not, not sing it for you. Uh, says this, you, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. And then came the chorus that repeated several times through this song. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. For just a moment in his life, <laughs> Bob Dylan got it right. Nailed it. Just nailed it. Those lyrics are an accurate, accurate representation of what Jesus is see, saying in John chapter 8. It may be the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. The Jews protest against Jesus, and this includes pl uh, playing the Abraham card, which they think is their best card. Uh, verse 39, first part again. Abraham is our father. Now, their response is to claim Abraham as a father. In other words, they are saying, uh, we're Jews, duh, we're God's chosen people. We belong to him already. We're not in danger of being enslaved to sin. But Jesus doesn't evaluate them that way. Jesus evaluates them on how they respond to him and his teaching. And so Jesus argues right back. Verse 39, the last part of verse 39. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. At this point in the debate with Jesus, it really becomes more of an attack against Jesus. They've been talking on more or less an intellectual level, arguing some scripture, and I'll show you some more of that to begin with. Uh, but now it moves to an emotional level. No longer facts, but emotions. They, they really cannot offer anything to substantiate, well, they don't offer anything to substantiate their claim that they belong to Abraham. In contrast, so far, what we have in the Gospel of John is they've been able to state something, state something, state something, keeping it on the intellectual level, and now they're stuck. So what do you do when you've exhausted your mental library and you got nowhere to go, but you still think that other person is wrong? but you have no argument. They go emotional. You know, it's like they, Jesus trumps them, says something that they can't answer, and uh, you're bad. You know, they just throw it out there. Now, here's, here's the form in which it comes. This is uh, verse 41, right in the middle. We are not illegitimate children. 
they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Now that statement, we are not illegitimate children. I'm reading from the NAV that's really playing nice with the wording. More literally, it says, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Basically, this is a cheap shot against Jesus. I love the way Jesus hangs in there with him, though. The conversation's not over. Jesus will not raise his voice. He'll be very direct, biblically based, and he will respond to them. This is so important for us to see because this is a model. I would like to think that I have embraced this model. I will talk to anyone. Anyone who has a question about Christianity, I'd love to hear about that. If you are mad at God, I'd like to listen to your story. If you are skeptical about Christianity, you know what, I'm glad you're using your mind. I'd, I'd like to talk to you and, and hear your arguments against Christianity. If you're confused by something that the Bible teaches or something that we do as a church, I'd love to have that conversation with you and try to clarify confusion. I'd hope we have pastors and elders and women leaders who will consider it their privilege to talk to you and to answer or at least try to answer any question that you have. Hard questions, big questions, small questions, inappropriate questions, questions with a veiled accusation, questions not so veiled accusations. I'll take them all. It will be my privilege to have a conversation with you about God and the things of God. But I will tell you this, if, particularly if you're a skeptic. I'll give you this tip. If you want to discredit Christianity, win me with the merit of your argument, not your emotion. I will be glad to have that conversation. But you don't need to go ballistic. Win me, impress me with the merit of your argument. And I will try to do the same. Jesus shows us this in John chapter 8. Turn, turn back, I'm turning back a page. Maybe it's for you. Just jump up to verse 12. Verse 12. This really is where the conversation started. I, I just felt like this was too long to teach in one setting. 12 all the way down to verse 59. Wow, that's a lot. So the conversation more or less begins in verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees, those are the religious leaders and the Jews, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Now, that might sound like a bit of a stinging uh, statement that they're just throwing out there. That's actually based on Scripture. It says we're, a, a, a witness is only, or a testimony is only valid if there's two or three witnesses. So they, they begin with, with, with the, on the intellectual level. 
where they're, they're trying to argue the merit of Scripture and how Jesus is understanding Scripture and how he's applying Scripture. And, and this continues on in terms of, hey, we, we belong to Abraham. We've always been free. We don't need to be set free. But then it gets to that point where they, they become stuck. And it goes from the intellectual to the emotional. And, and it, it will go physical in a moment, but we, we'll, we're going to get there. Let, let's jump down to verse 38. And we'll see that after it becomes emotional and hostile, this is where we see God's liberating grace. I'm not going to read all these things, but in John chapter 8, in the course of that conversation, 15 times Jesus either teaches or gives a warning. And 11 times the Jews respond often with hostility. And Jesus just keeps coming back with more teaching and more warning. No, 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 no. You don't want to go down that path. If you reject me, you reject your only option to be saved from your sin. You don't want to go down that path. He's telling them, he's telling them, he's telling them. All the while, they're getting more and more angry. Verse 48. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Wow. Cheap shot after cheap shot. And now it's direct and personal. Verse 52. At this the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? That should not be understood like the English way it's used in our culture. Hey, who do you think you are anyway? Although, really, that's not a bad understanding of it. But I think more to the tune of what this chapter is about and more literal would be, who are you pretending to be? Who are you making yourself out to be? It's personal. It's direct. And there's no attempt whatsoever to support their assertions with a well-reasoned argument. It's just an all-out attack led by emotion. And Jesus responds each time with a gracious invitation. This is the liberating grace of God. Even in the face of hostility, Jesus comes back to win people. What does Romans 5, 8 say? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in that chapter, it refers to us, prior to knowing Christ, as enemies of God. Keeps coming back. These angry Jews could enjoy the freedom that Jesus offers because he offers it to them. Let's look at verse 51 again. Make sure we, we didn't miss this. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So in the middle of this um, attack that has gone hostile and personal, 
Jesus says, if anyone, meaning all of you who are here, you folks who are so mad at me right now, if any of you keep my word, you'll never taste death. Amazing that even made them more mad. Well, verse 54 to the end. Well, no, let's just do a couple of verses here. But notice again with the word of God. Uh, Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Jesus justifies his entire talk with that. I keep his word. Word Jesus is based on the Word of God. Your father, in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, finally, the hostility of the Jews jumps to the next level where it becomes physical. Intellectual, emotional, and physical. Let's read on with verse 57. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. You might not understand all of that, but Jesus was exceedingly clear. I am is a reference that his audience would have readily understood. And we know they did because of their response. In the Old Testament book of Moses, or excuse me, in the Old Testament book of Exodus, Moses is told by God that God's name is I am, meaning that God is the self-existent one and he is the self-defining one. You cannot tell God who he is because he is self-existent. You cannot tell God what he is like because he is self-defining. What we do have is revelation from God. God tells us who he is and what he is, he is like and he has revealed all of that in his word, but no person on earth gets to decide who God is or what God is like. So with this phrase, I am, Jesus throws a link back to Exodus chapter 3, following forward, and Jesus is claiming to be God in a way that the Jews, the custodians and the guardians of Scripture, in a way that they could understand. The Jews hear this as blasphemy. And the penalty for blasphemy is stoning, and so they want him dead. And so that's why we have this response in verse 59. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Do you see the grace of God in that statement? They wanted to stone him. Jesus 
slipped away. Do you see the grace of God? Okay, do you, do you, do you see that Jesus did not call down judgment immediately at that point in time? Jesus did not call the temple to fall down upon these people and crush them. Jesus did not call for uh, fire and brimstone. Evaporate these people. Jesus quietly backed off. What's he doing? He's giving them the gift of time, and that is grace. This is six months prior to the cross. They have six months to think about this conversation. They have six months to decide for themselves. You know what? I, like, I kind of like the way that, that preacher stood up to those people. Or maybe they'd be saying it firsthand. I like the way the preacher stood up to us. I'm sure I like what he said. Maybe I should look into this. Six months. Jesus has bought them an immense amount of time. He's given them all the truth that they will ever need. And now he's given them the gift of time. Time to repent. Time to become right with God. And that is grace. This is the liberating grace of God that is offered to those who want to kill Jesus. Now, to make sure we're clear on this, Jesus was not crucified because he was misunderstood. Jesus was crucified because he was understood. But that truth was too hard for some people to receive. Jesus claimed to be God, claimed that he was sent by God, and claimed to bring the word of God. Claimed all of that because it was true. Now, it's fascinating to me, I just turned back to John chapter 1. It's fascinating that as I read through the gospel of John, it, I, I almost get to feel that, you know, what? He, he wrote the first 18 verses as a summary of the entire chapter, of the, of the entire gospel. That if we could just nail down the first 18, wow, we practically have the whole book. Because there's so much that, that gets um, spelled out in detail that we've already read about in what we call the prologue to the Gospel of John. So, Gospel of John, chapter 1, I'm going to start reading verse 1. And just, uh, I, I think this will become evident that John 8 ties back to John 1. Here we go. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. That life was the light of men, of people. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Verse uh, jump down to verse 10. Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, 
nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Wow. That's John chapter 8 in a nutshell. Have you taken the time yet to make sure that you are right with God? The mere fact that you are here ought to show you that God loves you so deeply. He wanted you to be here this morning to hear the praises of God sung by God's people and to hear the word of God taught by a pastor in God's church. Oh, God is so kind. Would you respond to him this morning? Let's pray. Our great and glorious God, you are more gracious than we dare to have ever imagined. And yet we read this in the pages of Scripture. How could it be that people who wanted to kill Jesus and were enemies and hostile and opposed to him, how could it be that Jesus just kept coming back, making these offers, explaining life, explaining himself, and finally giving them the gift of time to process what they had seen and heard. Well, I suppose if we examine the way you treat us, we would not be surprised. Each and every one of us has been treated with more grace than we could have ever asked for or imagined to be possible. In our younger days when we didn't really understand that you, you were there or that you existed, maybe we became Christians at a young age, but we didn't fully understand how our sin hurt your heart. Even in those days, you were so kind and so loving and so gracious. We thank you for that. We thank you this morning, our Heavenly Father, for supplying us this great room where it's warm and safe and dry, and we can come here on a weekly basis to hear your word taught and explained in a way that we can understand it. And now, my friends, if you're gathered here with us this morning and you've been on the outside looking in for some period of time, you don't need to be on the outside any longer. Please pray with me if it's your need to begin, not to end, but to begin a relationship, a lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, I've come to understand that I have a sin problem and I need you to set me free. Please do that this morning. And as I receive you into my life, I'm thrilled to understand that you are adopting me into your family. I receive you, you receive me. That's more than I have ever dreamed of. Thank you, God, that you call me your own. Now help me to hold on to your teaching. And when I am weak, give me the strength to go a day longer. Holding on to your teaching, 
that I might truly be your disciple, your follower. That's all I want at Thanksgiving. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's in his great name and for his glory I pray. Amen.